1: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome to Late Lunch Playback this first week in June. Our look back begins with Grace Corrigan, who was due to be married last weekend. I began by asking Grace if she was down in her boots because her wedding was cancelled.
2: Do you know what, Gerry? In March, we were more stressed because we didn't know if we were coming or going, were we cancelling, were we not cancelling? And I think once we made the decision to postpone till next year, it was just so much easier after that. We kind of had a date next year, grand, just let's get on with the year.
1: Where did you meet him?
2: (laughs) Uh, believe it or not, I met him in the in the gym. In the, the gym. local gym. Yeah, yeah. Not your typical nightclub. No. No,
1: there's a little story. And um, <laughs> did did he give you the eye, or you give him the eye? Or how did it happen?
2: If I think if I say the correct answer, he'll get a slagging. So I'll say nothing.
1: Go on, nobody's listening
2: (laughs) (laughs) I think I give them the eyes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Good woman yourself (laughs) Uh, So look, Saturday comes and you were to go to the beautiful Davar Castle, oh they look after people so well there for the weddings I love Castle,
2: have Mm. been exceptional they've been so amazing, I haven't had to contact them once, it's just the process has been so easy to change since last to next year So yeah, we're supposed to head off to Davar on Saturday but it wasn't meant to be due to COVID, obviously. Um, yeah. yeah. So
1: how,
2: long you, how long
1: are you engaged? When did you get engaged? Well,
2: engaged two and a half years, November All 16. right. Yeah.
1: Yeah, lovely. So grand time to prepare and put in place all the exactly, arrangements, etc. Exactly.
2: exactly. So a lot of he- planning.
1: A lot of planning. Of course, every wedding takes an awful lot and there's so much to be done and the excitement yeah. builds up and and like it's the one of the days of your life, probably the greatest day of your life when yeah. you look back on your wedding. So on Saturday, you did decide, let's get, get a little serious here, you decided to do a few things to mark the day that
2: might have been. Yeah, so we decided to create a little almost wedding, if you want to call it that. Um, we first woke up and had a lovely breakfast with a bit of champagne Um, And then I had arranged, I told the two families, so just two sets of parents and our siblings, to come over for an hour for a cup of tea. But really I had a few like little things planned. So I had bought myself a white dress and a veil that said on the back of it, nearly Mrs O'Reilly and Martin (laughs) wore a suit. So we looked apart. Um, and then outside we had kind of set up a few things so I put together like baby photos and photos of us growing up and then photos of us all together kind of hanging and then like a postage box that I was supposed to have at my reception that like it says if you want to leave lovely messages to the new Mr and Mrs and people popped in their like little messages but I had scribbles on almost Mr and Mrs um, on the box and people just wrote lovely messages during the day which was lovely.
1: It was just something else. Hold on a minute. You arranged a mini wedding day here, arranged young one. I a mini
2: wedding. Um, we were supposed to go, Martin had the twin cam. It's like a vintage 1986 car that we were supposed to go um, to the Darver Castle Inn. So we put ribbons on it and he organised a number plates that said almost married on them, on the back and front with <laughs> our names and the date. Um, So we got great photos with that. It was great. <laughs>
1: and you had a cake even.
2: We even had a cake. I'm very lucky that my lovely friend, she'll come in now, but um, a cake from Killing Care, uh, she's a home ec teacher, but she, I asked her and she kindly, she had no bother doing this, of course, a lovely cake. Um, and we got a little Mr and Mrs kind of sign-off and we had a cutting-off with cake as well. So there was not much that we missed out on, to be fair, on the few Are you sure you're not married? <laughs> I don't know now. Yeah, it was a lovely day. It was so nice.
1: <laughs> you didn't smuggle in a priest or out into the back garden that did the necessary and you're not telling us about yeah,
2: it. Yeah. And you know what, people even laughing being like, oh great, you could have got married today. All you need is a priest and you're sorted in the field there, yeah. Yeah, um, you could
1: have just gone the whole hog and done yeah. it and, and then yeah. had the big party when it's, it, it, yeah. it's arranged for next year. I know, year, but and I know some people go. have done that
2: and it's such a good idea. But yeah, we more. more, I <laughs> could have done it. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the weather was fabulous, so we were so lucky to just all be outside. But we were joking. Well, I was joking. I was saying, God, no, it definitely the wedding would not have worked out this year. I'm because it's way too hot to be in a wedding dress. So, <laughs> <laughs> it will not have worked out well for me. Um,
1: it's a terror of the straws you clutch at when you yeah. have to. I'm just thinking here. But you're probably right. Look at the heat. You would have collapsed on we're the very, day. It yeah, would yeah, be absolutely. an emergency or whatever. That's right. You're absolutely right. I couldn't agree with you more. But here's the thing. It is going to happen. You have. Re- when will it be yeah. uh, next year now?
2: Um, April twenty fifth of next year. Yeah, lovely. Is that so after light.
1: Easter? Is that after Easter? When is Easter next year? Did you look I at that?
2: I no? think it's the week before or after Easter. All ah, right. one or the other. Yeah. But no, we lovely. decided just to make the most of the day and make it as positive as we could. And you know, so we did it. Yeah.
1: You you certainly did it. You really did. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. Uh, and very grateful. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know, you went, you went to a big effort last Saturday to do what you could. Family over in the back garden, and the day was lovely. And like, you know what I mean? You, you marked the the days so you did. What yeah. about the rings? Is all have the, have the rings been got and all that type we of have, stuff?
2: And um, the, the original rings, yeah, they have got. Um, but we hadn't been got off the shop yet, so we didn't go that far on Saturday. So we didn't.
1: mm So there's no dates or names or notations on the rings for Saturday. No, nothing like no. that done.
2: No, we're actually very lucky. So yeah. Um, But just myself, I'm actually working on the front line myself and I said like it just really puts things into perspective and like we have our health, we have all our families are well so I said you know what just make the Mm. most of this day and make it as positive as we can.
1: And well done to you for saying that because you see we can become a little blase, you know this yourself and you can see it around you but you know from where you work the yes. dangers, and that we can never become blasé about this. Yes. Never. So
2: absolutely. Like, everybody's been saying, oh God, I'm so sorry for your wedding, Grace. And do you know what? It's actually grand, you know. There's mm. bigger things in life right now, and we've got our health, and that's what we need to be grateful for. And it's not just my wedding that's cancelled. The whole world is on a standstill right now.
1: What a positive, bubbly woman. So accepting and understanding. That'll be some bash when it does happen next year. Food blogger and author Gina Daly joined me, and yes, we did talk food. But first, what's the story with those tattoos?
3: Um, Well, it's something we've always been interested in, I suppose, in the line of work that we used to, the kind of corporate. We weren't able to express ourselves in the way we wanted to, so... Um, we were fortunate enough to be able to work from home so um, and become our own bosses, so we, we just went mad.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Hey, well, listen, it goes with the territory. What? Y- you were messaging him first and thought he was uh, a woman. Then you discovered he was a man. You went out for two weeks and you got engaged and you got married within six months. Hey, what the hell? <laughs>
3: it was a whirlwind, a whirlwind. Yeah, we, uh, we worked for the same company and he was in a head office in stores and uh, he was um, in marketing and customer support and I would have to email him with queries and stuff, but I thought he was a girl in Head Off because his name is spelled K-A-R-O-L I'd be chatting away and having a great bit of crack, you know, how was your weekend and then I just remarked one day to my boss, I said, isn't Carl Lovely up in Head Off, she's a lovely girl and he said, I don't know a Carl up there and he says, you mean Carl Daly, that's a guy, well I was mortified actually mortified
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's a great story. Well, you don't let the grass grow under your feet, that's for sure. Tell me this, like, you know, you you have been uh, uh, reared and grown up with food and your mum and your home and everything and, and you loved it and different types of food. But this book, right, The Daily Dish, is it fair to say that you, you're looking at how to make what would some people would think would be an unhealthy food healthy?
3: Yes. Yeah. So to to the eye, it looks dirty food it looks like you couldn't possibly eat that and 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 stay on a plan or um you know whatever you're doing if it's calorie counting or if you're in a slimming way but basically i'm just tricking your eye I'm, i'm i'm turning what essentially just uh you know meat and veg into something more appealing and making making it look like and taste like you're eating something from a takeaway or something really really bold so we just kind of use less fats. We use really lean meat. And um, yeah, we're, we, we're constantly looking for the next thing to cook. We get a lot of inspiration from American TV, which is the food that we love to eat. Um, mm-hmm. And we, we try and figure out a way how to, to put a spin on it and, and cook it in a, a low fat, healthier version.
1: I really like you because it <laughs> looks and tastes like the stuff Masso. that is not good, good for us, and yet it is really good for us. It's a, it's a, it's a wonderful concept you've brought in, and I'm not, not lying, saying when you announced that this book was coming, the pre-orders went mad, didn't they? And look at you on Instagram.
3: I know it was it, like I never in a million years expected to be in, in this position and to have a book and and everything else. And um, we we sat on the the book for a long time for months and we couldn't we weren't able to talk about it and the day we announced it um, we had a, a pre-order uh, kind of they said look if you sell this many as a pre-order in the next few weeks you'd be doing well and sure that was gone in 10 minutes and then in 24 hours we would nearly sold our first um, batch of books so um, yeah it was quite incredible <laughs>
1: a very, ah, you're, a, you're, you're a great couple and a great story hey though would you like a bit of liver I'll do a bit of liver for you this evening if you'd like it <laughs>
2: I loved
3: liver, loved liver uh, for all my childhood until I actually asked my mum one day, I was like, what's liver made of? And she was like, it, it, it's a liver, like an actual liver. Oh, well, I nearly died. <laughs> <laughs> I still love, I remember the smell and the taste, and I, I, I keep saying I'm going to do it one day, but I, I just haven't brought myself to do it yet.
1: <laughs> the other thing is this uh, uh, you and and the hobby, Carol, the man, and um, between you, you've lost some amount of weight over the years. What does it stand at? Ten stone, is it between the two of you?
3: Yeah, it's ten stone, um, and <gasps> we we uh, he he from I I lost I had gallbladder problems and um I had to have surgery, and from that I lost a, a good bit of weight just from having because I had to have a low fat diet, and um then I loved how I felt and everything you know clothes and everything felt great. So I I joined a slimming club and from my healthy eating kind of kick-started. I suppose it was subconsciously he was losing weight. with me. Not subconsciously, but it was happening for him as well because I was he was eating what I was eating um, and he lost four stone. And now I lost eight stone in total, but over, over a few years, the, the weight started kind of coming back in and I was losing momentum with my, my food. I just wasn't enjoying it. So that's how this all came about. I, I wanted to make food that was still good for me. But the food that I actually wanted to eat and, and not be monotonous and boring. So um yeah, we, we uh we we lost a lot of weight so <laughs>
1: <laughs> Well, you know, like overall when you think of, you know, your lives, the way they've changed, you know, based in County Mead now working from home into the food blogging, the book. I, I take it there's another book on the way.
3: I don't know. I don't know what there could be. I mean, it <laughs>
2: would be mad not to now.
1: <laughs> yes, you would be mad not to because you're onto something really cracking here. I want to tell you that again. You, you really are. Hey, listen, what about the satay beef? Is it difficult?
3: No, absolutely not. It's it's a five minute dish and you literally just throw everything into the pan and it's done and dusted. Um, I get asked, also, can I put it in a slow cooker? I say, you don't need to. You can make that in five minutes you know if you're coming in the door and you're starving and you're thinking of of ordering a takeaway make that and it will be ready by the time you'd have rang one and it would would come to your house but it's it's superb it's absolutely delicious and nicer than any takeaway you'll get
1: So you have really discovered this because you were a great one for eating out especially with your dad Hey where was that golf club he used to play golf? Lucan Ah, oh, lovely. Yes, I know it. I know it indeed where it is. You know, when you wrote, I saw you writing about the smell of onions when you were coming near the clubhouse cooking. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Jesus, I'll tell you, the smell of onions when you're out there. You'd just charge in and order a steak, wouldn't you? <laughs> That's
3: it. Annie, that smell just, as I said, it still sits in my memory. And just—and mm. I used to be absolutely knackered because my dad said, come on, play around. And then I'd end up just pulling his...
1: Cart
3: around and I mm. <laughs> browned off. I'm <and> just hungry, <laughs>
4: angry, and that now
1: was just amazing. Well, look, I just wanted to have a wee word with you today. We'll talk again, and I want to tell listeners about the book. It's the Daily Dish, and it's available online from eastons.com dot com and Dubré Books. And tell them where their, your Instagram is so as so you can get more followers.
3: So it's the daily, so it's D A L Y because that's my surname and Dish D I S H. So um, and we've got, and that, we actually set up a, a YouTube channel there last week as well. So we're going to have loads of content, free great. content, um, up too.
5: So yeah,
1: it's all great. <laughs> well worth the look on Instagram for sure. Well done to the dailies. The killing of George Floyd has lit a fuse that's exploded a wave of anger and protests across the United States of America. What we read, hear and see is shocking by times. So what's it like on the ground? I was joined by Irish Times Washington correspondent Suzanne Lynch, who was in the South heading back to D.C.
6: Just To to give you the picture, I'm here um, talking to you. I'm on my way back. I've been down in Georgia. Um, I was due to go down and do a story. It's about a 10-hour drive from Washington, D.C. And I came down here to Atlanta at the weekend where there were, were protests. And I was there... Uh, On Friday night, there was a protest outside the the White House in Washington. Then I came down here to Georgia um, and was here for the protest in Atlanta. And look, it it is very, very serious what's happening. And it's happening in dozens of cities around the United States. Um, The protests that I have attended, for the most part, I must say, they have been peaceful. Most of the people there are marching in solidarity with their fellow citizens. I was talking to kind of young women in their 20s. Um, One white woman, one Asian woman and the land said they had come, they were very angry but very peacefully protesting because they feel that, as they said to me, that their African-American friends have all experienced, as they said to me, some kind of racial stigmatisation, some kind of, uh, you know, racial judgement by law enforcement in the country. Um, So this... The reality is that most people here feel very strongly about this, are po- protesting peacefully. But then what happened and the pattern is that once day comes tonight and the curfews have started, that's when things start getting more tense and destructive. So I was there where police were literally facing off with supporters, uh, with protesters, maybe 10 foot apart. Um, and then as the curfew started, then they started moving uh, people up north. I was kind of swept up with the crowd, kind of away from the from the, the centre um using tear gas in some situations uh and put in a very kind of a very violent atmosphere I would say, even though the violence itself that I saw was limited enough.
1: Mm. You know, I saw, I can't remember where it was, images of uh, Martin Luther King and the marches in the 60s, right? Yeah. Superimposed Mm -hmm. on the marches of today. And if you just, you know, could move the colour to the black and white and the black and white to the colour, you'd think you were looking at the Mm -hmm. same thing. You see, what I'm getting at here, Suzanne, is in all this time, uh, is this really simmering under the surface and has never really been dealt with?
6: Absolutely. And like here now in Georgia, you know, where I've been, it, this is in Atlanta. This is the birthplace of Martin Luther King. It's where his funeral was after he was shot in 1968 in Memphis. His body was brought back to Atlanta. And the people of Atlanta prided themselves because all over the country there were huge riots at that time when he was killed. But there weren't in Atlanta because his message was nonviolent violent protest. This is how you affect change. You engage with politicians. You try and get representation. You try and deal with the inequality. But the reality is that, as you say... You know, and it's interesting that the people i was seeing they were quite young. There were people in their 20s, you know, and even they mm. feel disillusioned with the system here. One example, there are many examples. Uh, last week now, people may have seen a CNN reporter who was arrested live on air as he broadcast yeah. from Minneapolis. Basically, I mean, he said it himself at the CNN. The, the, the suspicion is he was arrested because he was not white. Other reporters have been walking around and they weren't they weren't arrested. So, mm. you know, it's this sense that you're hearing from people that there is this kind of endemic, system, systemic, and quite sometimes unconscious racism in this country. And the, the figures with, uh, with the jails and prisons are, are pretty astonishing. A lot of this goes back to the 1990s when there was a big clampdown on crime. Bill Clinton brought in a crime bill. And he has himself said recently that he not quite regrets that, but that it had its own consequences. Because what happened was that um, African-American men in particular were picked up um, they have huge incarceration rates here so people can be jailed for years for non-violent crimes for, for life and that so was a build up of the prison population that brought its own problems into that community um, and that really now people looking back saying that wasn't the, the, the place, the way to go um, so I think the other fear here is that of course the incidents that sparked all this, that was caught on camera but the governor of, of Minnesota where this had happened, he actually said that What people are worried about is that what other, what else has happened out, you know, away from camera.
1: Yes. And that, you
6: know, this is the one thing that was captured on camera and people are worried that this has been happening all along. You can just never prove it. So, look, it's it's very tense. I mean, it's very hard to know how this is going to go. Um, I think the curfews, they, they really, you know, where I've been in Washington and Georgia, you get an automatic, notification on your phone a big kind of dramatic ping everyone gets the same type of thing. curfew now and forth you have to be inside anyone outside is violating this it's very it's a very scary a very threatening mm. kind of atmosphere here at the moment. Mm.
1: What about the main man? Like last night, uh, a few hours ago, he comes out to, to talk and uh, there's people cleared away from the White House. He goes across Pennsylvania Avenue to the church there and he's holding a Bible, St. John's Church. And, you know, you, you listen to his language as well. He was initially so sorry and naturally for what happened and regretted uh, the death mm-hmm. uh, of George Floyd. But but since then, you know, is his language inflammatory more than, you know, quelling the blimmin' thing?
6: Yeah, I think the issue last night with Donald Trump was the timing. So all day he'd been under pressure to make a statement, and he had said no essentially. The White House said no, this, he wasn't going to make a big address to the nation. And then, you know, just after six p.m., and uh, now the curfew is about to start at seven in Washington DC. Just after six, the White House announced actually he will give an address. Then that was delayed. So he timed. This is a man who knows about the power of a photo and the power of the media. He was a reality TV star after all. You know, the timing of this was, was orchestrated, that that he arrived down to the Rose Garden of the White House, where you're literally, you know, I don't know how, very, very close to um, that park in front of the White House. He, you know, he could hear what was happening outside. You could mm-hmm. definitely smell the tear gas in the air. And then he delivered this address saying he was the president of law and order. Um, and then at that very moment, he made this dramatic move. I mean, all my time in Washington, Donald Trump has never walked out the gates though, of the White House. He, he doesn't do that. He travels everywhere by car. But he walked out the gates across this church. And then people may have uh, have seen this this morning as this news is breaking. I was writing about this morning on our website. But the bishop, um, a woman of, who's the bishop, of Episcopalian bishop in Washington, was absolutely furious. It's worth hearing what she said. She was saying you know, this is our church, he didn't ask permission, he didn't go into the church, he used this as a photo opportunity, he held up the Bible at a time when people were literally being forcibly removed by police, just so he could do that. Um, and Washington, D.C., you know, people think of the White House and all those fabulous monuments, it's actually got a huge um, Amer- African-American population, and um, saw back in the 60s, with huge segregation, there still is, to be quite honest, but the city is very, very divided, and this is one of the reasons when Obama became president, that it was so symbolically important for the people of Washington. So, um, gee, that bishop really captures the sense that Donald Trump was, you know, effectively using, uh, sanctioning the use of tear gas and violence by some members of the Secret Service and and riot police to move people so he could walk over and hold up a Bible and stand outside a church. Um, And, and, you know, a lot of religious people in this country, of all political persuasions said, you know, that is not what my religion is about. Um, and actually, at the moment, as a leader, as a president of the United States, you should be trying to bring together the country. Now, you know, the, like I said with Donald Trump, there's, a grain of tr- there's been a lot of violence and looting and non peaceful protests that's happened here. And yes, people are very annoyed at that. And yes, law enforcement have a responsibility to keep people safe. But it's just that Donald Trump was focused on that part of things, not about the legitimate, the underlying reason why people need yes. protesting in the first place. Mm. And that's the issue with him. He always looks for the division, not... unity
1: yes i'd be worried when you say you're not sure how this is going to play out and like he's talking about sending the full force military in that would be something else Mm. if they were to appear all over the states you know what i mean the u.s
6: army uh, you know it's very serious because you're getting again into this issue that's come up it came up during coronavirus which obviously is still still here of course but that this tension, the way the United States is set up, that the states have a lot of power, so it's the tension between the states and the federal government. It's not clear how much authority Donald Trump has. He actually does have the authority to send in the army, but really states have to invite him in. This is, not to get too technical, this is why he kind of could do that in Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. is not technically a state, so it's a kind of a strange legal situation in Washington. Um But the rest of the states really technically, as far as I'm aware, have to kind of invite the federal government to send in the army. So, you know, already he's been clashing with all these governors who are trying to sort out and have a lot of power over law and order in their own states. And he had a phone call on Monday. It was YDC, in which he told them basically to toughen up, that they were weak. He said that Minnesota's laughing stock around the world. And then afterwards, the governor of Minnesota said, well, actually... Nobody's laughing here. It's not a laughing talk. I'm trying to keep calm. I'm, you know, we're doing our best. Um, so he is definitely, his message to the governors are, you know, be tough. And look, we're five five months out of our election now, Jerry. He's been very explicit about trying to link Joe Biden, the Democratic candidate, to what he's calling anarchy. And on Twitter, he's been saying, you know, I'm the president of law and order. And essentially he's saying, you know, if you vote for Joe Biden, you're voting for these kind of radical anarchists who are going to go around mm-hmm. You know, that's kind of his message. And look, it may play well among some of the base uh, who may be very fearful of seeing what's happening. I feel like they need a tough president. It's going to be tough. You know, who knows? It could, it could uh, play well for him in the election.
1: Mm. I just think it's early May We Spoke last and how this has turned so quickly in an instant. But you're right what you say there. The underlying issues, those are the issues that have never been really realistically dealt with. Have you any hope? Have you any hope of progress and and that this will die down and ease off?
6: Yeah, it's just, I mean, I think this underlying, you know, race issue in America is just so huge. It's an open wound here still. And um, the issue, like even with coronavirus it, it really became clear the inequality in this country that mm. people most affected by coronavirus were on, uh, people, non-white people, most of yeah. them in lower-paid jobs. You know, there's 40 million people now in this country that have signed up for unemployment benefits. So you've got a whole economic problem going on in the background here as well. And the mayor of Atlanta, an African-American woman who's been excellent, When these protests were happening over the weekend, she did say she's worried now that in two weeks' time, there's going to be a spike in COVID cases because all these people were out protesting together. So, like, that's a whole other issue that's here in the background. And that's starting to have a real material effect on people's lives because they're losing jobs, etc. So, you know, it's all bound up. and then the healthcare and the system, you know, the more money you have, the, the, the healthier you are. There's such a systemic problem with that, too that I think it's just all these different issues now are come to the fore, race, economic inequality, health inequality, and all that with the president of the White House, who's so divisive and just yeah. strives, thrives oh. on division, really.
1: Oh, for a unifying president. What next for the disunited States of America? Thanks again to Suzanne for her take on the situation on the ground. And don't forget, you can read her brilliant analysis daily in the Irish Times. A dramatic rescue on the River Boyne recently. The hero of the hour, Tara Polian, describes what happened.
7: I had um, gone to the, the shops for a, a housemate and I decided to get a roll and go down and eat it at the, at the Boyne just down there where the, that big old rusty boat is, is always um, anchored. Uh, and I was just feeding the seagulls kind of a thing. Um, and I noticed there was a, a lady in the water, so I just... I didn't know whether she was swimming or, you know, I didn't know um, what was happening, kind of, so I just went over to have a look and I kind of quickly realised she was in trouble and um, she wasn't moving and she was face down in the water. And um, So, um, I, I I guess I, I, I probably panicked a bit and um, I shouted to a guy on the, the right um, for help and shouted to my left for help, but everybody was like uh, a good distance away and I kind of realized it was like um, time was, was pretty critical. So I um, decided to go down and see if I can help in any way. So I went down the steps. Um, I can remember running across the, the rocks and the seaweed and taking out my phone and taking off the glasses and putting them on the, the seaweed and thinking, oh God, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? I can't even swim. Um, so I am... Um, I lifted up the skirt and jumped into the water um, um, and started trying to make my way towards her. Um, luckily, a local man, Jim, uh, seeing what was happening, he'd run down when I, when I shouted for help. Um, and he threw a life boy in from uh, from up high on the street level. Um, and I grabbed that in my arm and started making my way towards the, the woman in the water. But the, the current had got her and she was kind of getting away from me fairly quickly. Um, and I got to the stage where um, like, when I when I went to the water at first I could see the bottom and I was thinking it's not that deep to hear it, you know, so um, I kind of get in but then as I was getting towards her the, the land started disappearing um, and I was kind of up on tiptoes and realising that I was running out of uh, places to stand fairly quickly um, so I, the woman was getting away, she was probably 6-8 foot away from me, um, she was moving pretty fast so uh, I just took a big lunge um and grabbed her by the dress. Um and the man Jim uh, who had thrown down the, the life ring. He came down the steps and walked down along the rocks. Um so I roared to him to to pull in the life ring and uh he pulled it in and we managed to, to get the lady uh up out of the water and on her side and uh we seen then she was moving her arm a bit and uh yeah she started to come to a bit so um and then uh, a lovely lady Margot there was up on there a lot of people had gathered around um, And a uh, lovely lady and um, seeing that I was in a bit of a shock and it was a hell of a shock hitting that water right sunburn because of the lovely weather and um, it, was, it was so so cold in that water and mm. um, so uh, this lady um, got me up the steps and got me into the ambulance and And, uh, River Rescue had came and, uh, got the lady into the boat and bring her over to the boathouse over the fireside. So we went round in the ambulance and collected her and, uh, made our way to the hospital then and uh, got some x-rays because I'd had a bit of water in the, in the mouth and, uh, I'd cut some bruises and scrapes and stuff and, uh, yeah, yeah. I I get out of the hospital then that that evening kind of a thing.
1: Well, don't you? That's you describe it brilliantly there. And look, you you can't swim. Did you just? Was it natural instinct? It was just fight or flight. You just went into the water. That was it. You just no thought about I I, I could be in trouble here.
7: Well, I I kind of knew, but I, I I didn't think there was any other option. I think if I was waiting for somebody that could swim, um, I mm. don't think uh it would have been as good of an outcome kind of a thing. So um. So, yeah, I just thought, like, I've got to do something here. I've got to try and save this woman. So, um,
1: And you did, and, and, and subsequently she has recovered and her family have been in touch with you?
7: Yeah, yeah, they, she, they said she's doing OK, yeah.
1: Good, really great story, this. Um, the man, Jim, well done to him also, whoever he is... He, he played a big part I know in this and the, the the life ring it shows you the importance of these life rings when I hear them being tampered with uh, Tara it's a shocking thing but it was there and it helped save the day
7: Oh thank God because um, I think without the life ring and Jim pulling it back in I'd say the two of us could have come a cropper quite easily it was um, it was definitely vital in this situation that's for sure um, mm-hmm. they definitely are something that should be looked after and people shouldn't be messing with them at all
1: Definitely not, and and it's not the first time you've been involved. I read in, in, in saving a life.
7: Um, no, I I I um, saved somebody in um, Trim Castle Hotel. Um, I lived in Trim for a long time, um, and it was a woman that was uh, choking. Uh, she was eating food, so I done the Heimlich maneuver, kind of a thing, um, but. Uh, I guess the, the woman was a bit embarrassed, so we just kind of sat down and, you know, mm, and
1: mm. head on kind of. It's, a, a, it's another frightening situation, you know, that yourself when something like that happens. But but well done not you, lightning has struck twice in your life. They say they come in threes, Tari You hardly want to face a, a, another situation like this anytime soon.
7: I don't know. I'm, I'm, <laughs> it seems to be a thing. I'm forever stopping on the road and rescuing <laughs> birds and animals and foxes <laughs> and all sorts. So. I don't know, maybe I'm just a bit of a magnet, I'm not sure.
1: <laughs> it might be in your DNA. It runs in the veins for sure. Look, I just wanted to have a little word with you and say well done and acknowledge your bravery in saving another human being's life in the River Boyne, which is treacherous at the best of times. Well done to you. You are a hero. Thanks, Amelia. A life saved. A hero indeed. Wonderful story. We round off our look back on late lunch this week with an inspiring story. Nine weeks on, Laura Barry emerged from our Lady of Lourdes hospital in Drogheda, having beaten COVID nineteen. Back home now, I caught up with Laura, and I put it to her back in late March. Did she realize how unwell she actually was?
4: No, not really. I just I my temperature was spiking a bit and I was vomiting a lot. I couldn't keep anything down. Um, I had no problem with my breathing, but then I kind of got worse over 24 hours. And when I rang the GP, he told me to go up that I had a few symptoms of the COVID. So I went up to the Lords and they put me into an isolation unit and they tested me for COVID and it was positive. And uh, to be honest, which I don't remember much after that until I came to in the ICU about five weeks later.
1: Really? So it was as quick as that, that they had to uh, get you into intensive care and they put you into this induced coma. Was that almost immediately? What have you found out since?
4: Yeah, well, what happened was um, I was in the New Grange ward for a week and at the end of that week, the, my uh, oxygen level started to drop dramatically. So I was sent up to recovery and then straight into ICU. And while I was there for four weeks, they put me in an induced coma and then they did a process called proning, which they lie me on my tummy for 16 hours a day to actually help the air in the lungs go from the back of the lung to the front of the lung to actually help me breathe. So that was for four weeks. And then they brought me out of sedation and I was a bit delirious for a while. And then I was there for a further two weeks and then back down to the New grade ward for two weeks. And as you say, I only came home on Tuesday. So long, long, long road and a tough battle but I said I'm blessed to have come through it.
1: You are and it's great to be talking to you today I want to say again. When, when you go in and you're on the ward and then into the ICU obviously then you're becoming more ill all the time so you have no recollection you don't remember did you get a chance to say anything to your family your children?
4: I did but only after you see the nurses in the ICU they have a tablet so they used to ring home And even though I couldn't talk, I was able to wave at them. They could see me. I could see them. But after seven weeks, some of the nurses brought me down to the main door of the hospital. And my husband and two daughters were able to come in. And obviously with the social distance, we were two metres apart. But it was a very, very emotional day because it was the first time I'd seen them in seven weeks. And it really gave me a boost to just be determined to actually get better and walk out those doors again.
1: So the tablet came to great use and fair use to the staff there that were able to, you know, connect you with your family from a distance as it was. And you had no strength. You weren't able to talk to them, just wave at them.
4: I couldn't, no, because they had a me in. Yeah. So with the tube in and they had to put yes. the balloon in and they had to inflate that. So with that inflated, I couldn't talk. Okay. So, but I was able to see them and it was just the best medicine ever because <laughs> it just gave me the boost to get better.
1: So that was after you came out from the induced coma but before yeah. that it was really whirlwind you were in and they didn't see much of you from you no. really hit the hospital, not at all
4: No they didn't Now the day I went up to ICU on the 8th of April John and my, one of my daughters, Emma, had come in to see me but I've no recollection of them been there so I was obviously that sick and then I've no recollection of being in the ICU or anything that happened to me before I came to
1: but there is details of your time when, if I could say it, that you were in this deep sleep. Tell me about that, because I never knew about this before. It's something that's kept in the ICU by the staff there.
4: Yeah, it's a journal, a diary that they keep, and it's called The Missing Days. And it's to fill in the gaps, say so anybody like me who was in a coma, to fill in the details of what happened and how the nurses cared for me and um, each nurse on day duty and night duty write a little paragraph in the journal. So it kind of fills in the missing days for me. Now I started to read it in the hospital but I found it very emotional. So I said I'd leave it until I was feeling a little bit stronger at home. But uh, it's a an idea that they had and they have it in, in place now for about a year. So it's an absolutely fantastic idea. It's great incentive and it actually... It's brilliant for someone like me to fill in what happened to me, because I've no recollection of anything.
1: You do know at this stage that when you're in induced coma and they immobilise you and you're on the critical list, it's touch and go. You nothing nothing is there. I'm just trying to think about that. You know nothing. You feel nothing. There's nothing in your mind all across that period at all. Nothing comes back to you.
4: Nothing at all. But not yet. Now they did advise me that I could have hallucinations when I go home. But so far, so good, nothing has happened. Mm. um, (laughs) No, they put me into an induced coma and they paralysed me because Mm. on the off chance that I would have woken up from the sedation, I wasn't allowed to move because I had tubes and ventilators and everything stuck in me and coming out of me and everything. So I wasn't able to. So, um, yeah, I don't remember a thing. There's absolutely no recollection at all from the day I left uh, the ward to I so i actually woke up in icu because i didn't know where i was
1: yeah Yeah, but it must have been something else that first time using the tablet that you saw them, as you said. And then, of course, a few weeks later to come out and meet them from a distance. Oh, it
4: was brilliant, Terry. It really was. mm -hmm, mm -hmm,
1: Unbelievable. I I want to mention uh, one of your daughters. Uh, What a lovely young woman she was, Nicola, who I interviewed on this show in the past. And sadly, she herself passed away all too young on the 1st of August 2014. Was she in your thoughts or around you at all? Have you anything to say about that?
4: Well, I do I do remember feeling a presence when I was, I have to say when I was unconscious, but I do remember I knew she was there. I knew she was with me. And I keep thinking that she was pushing me back and saying, no, ma'am, don't want to see you just yet. Because definitely I said she had a great part to play in my recovery and my survival
1: isn't that interesting that you you yeah. felt that you know laura that 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 she you she felt she, she was there with you now you you came home on tuesday uh, to wonderful joy at the hospital wonderful joy of course for your family it must be just something else to be in your own home again
4: oh well to be honest with you Jerry, there were times i didn't think i'd ever leave the hospital uh because i was that sick but i, I just the nursing staff up there, the doctors, the consultants, like they're, they're particularly the nurses, they're absolutely second to none up there. And I owe them my life. Sounds very dramatic, but I do, because they nurse me back to life. They nurse me back to health. And uh, their care and devotion to their patients is just unreal.
1: They are wonderful, wonderful people. And it's only now, I think, that some of us begin to realise how great they actually are, like you are uh, saying now to me. um, You have a road to go still because, you know, you're on medication. You've had muscle wastage, I believe, quite a bit.
4: Yeah, a lot of muscle wastage because it was the four weeks and then the further two weeks in the ICU, I wasn't moving. I wasn't mobile at all. I was kind of bed-bound until maybe for the last week. The physios come in, the speech and language therapists come in to help me, to literally train me how to eat again because the muscles were wasted completely all over the body. And then the physios then were helping me to walk again. So thankfully I'm on a walking stick now. I've gone from a frame to a crutch to a walking stick. So I'm actually getting around now and it's all thanks to the physios and their hard work. And then uh, I'm eating again. No problem. I love my food.
1: Mm. <laughs> Good <laughs> yes. woman.
4: <laughs> yes, I oh, know it is. It, it's a miracle. They called me their medical miracle up in the ICU because I was at that store and one of the consultants had actually rang my husband, John, on Good Friday. It was two days after I went into ICU to say that I was very critical and there was nothing more they could do for me. So uh, one of the doctors up there, a the Christian doctor, Dr. Jubal Thomas, He prayed all night for me and the next day he came in and you could see a slight improvement. So as I said, from then to today, it was just onwards and upwards.
1: Marvellous. It is just such an inspiring and uplifting story because you know yourself, uh, each day we get uh, news of those who've passed on with COVID and the new cases uh, that uh, come up as well. And that's been relentless uh, for weeks and months now. But to hear your story of recovery and to be talking to you today when you went to the to the edge, so to speak, and, and here yeah. you are on the way back. It's just yeah. great. I'm delighted. I'm delighted you're, you're chatting to me on the show today. You don't know how happy I am.
4: Thank you very much, Terry.
1: No, thank you for taking the call and I know it's it's an effort as well to talk for the length we've been talking here. Would you put me on to Emma, your lovely daughter there, please? Laura, thank you.
4: Thank you very much, Terry. Good talking to you. Great
1: talking to you too. Our Laura, she's some woman for one woman. But what's it like from the family's perspective? Here's daughter Emma, who goes back to that hospital referral and the belief that her mum would be home in no time.
5: I suppose it's like when anyone kind of goes down to hospital like you expect them there for a few hours you know maybe a day or two but they're kind of home again pretty quickly Um, but I suppose kind of like with COVID what was extremely kind of like distressing with like the whole experience that it hadn't like it hasn't been around before it's completely unprecedented so we really you know had no idea what to expect but I think you know it kind of was that kind of story that we kind of thought like yeah she'd be back home but yeah she was like sick but it was just what seemed like kind of, you know, normal flu symptoms. And whilst we were aware that, like, you know, COVID was, like, you know, rampaging the country, like, it hadn't touched anyone else that we knew of, thank God. So we kind of thought that it would be, you know, a mild enough case like others we had heard of.
1: Mm. One thing I didn't ask, or just while you're on there, maybe you can answer it. Does she know where she picked it up or how she got it?
5: That's the thing, like, n- not at all, because, um, like, yeah. doctors are trying to do, like, the tracing with her and um, like was like in the family like none of the rest of us had had any symptoms whether it was the case that we had contracted it and just been a carrier and not been sick ourselves or whether she picked it up like you know community transmission and um, like mm. the doctors really weren't sure and I suppose that kind of made us that little bit scarier because you know you don't almost don't know where you could pick it up or could get it and I suppose like it is that fear in people And why it's so important, you know, to kind of maintain, like, the social distancing and stick to the government's guidelines, like, at the moment.
1: For sure. That really is a point, folks, if you're listening to us today, to bear in mind, think about this. This ain't over. This goes on and we must not drop our guard. Now, when she went in, the initial few days when she was on Grange, you still, you couldn't see her at all. You didn't see her from the time she went in. She just whisked away from you onto the ward, into ICU. It must have been horrendous. Each day and the hours ticking by, thinking, how is she?
5: Yeah, no, like it, it was um, when she went into Newgrange originally, and um, when she was first admitted to hospital in the beginning of April, like it was, it was still very difficult because we couldn't go and see her, and even just like the comfort of holding someone's hand, it does a lot for like you know the patient and their visitor, I think. But um, like we were able to still talk to her like on the phone, but as she kind of gradually grew thicker the contact kind of lesson 'cause because she just w- wasn't strong enough and like, it was too weak to be like texting or ringing or um, especially when she started developing like issues with her breathing, it was like pretty much non-existent contact like directly with her. Like the staff were fantastic that we were able to contact them like, you know, several times a day. My dad was on the phone, like, you know, getting updates. And um, so that was comfortable, but it's not quite the same as actually being able to see someone. And I think that's kind of the toughest part of, um, you know, being... A family member of a patient with COVID is that it is like completely, you know, isolating almost that you can't visit. And I, I understand it's in like, you know, everyone's best interest for um like infection control. But it is you know it's very tough kind of the reality of not being able to see a loved one.
1: Mm. Did you think you were going to lose her?
5: Yeah, like definitely. Like there was a point where like when Dad and I got in to see her, um before she went <laughs> before she went up to ICU. She um like she was like we really saw then like how sick she was, but still didn't register with us that it was like, you know, completely critical because like to us she was still alert, she was still talking, she was well able to like, you know, converse with us. So then that was the eighth of April. But going from that to like seeing her alert and awake and even though very sick, we still, you know, thought, Oh, you know, she's still doing really well to getting that call on Good Friday. To say that, um, like, you know, there wasn't anything more they could do for her. And especially because COVID was, like, you know, completely unknown to the doctors as well as the general public. It really kind of, you know, was a a day-to-day thing. But definitely, I think that call kind of, you know, shocked us all to our core and really brought brought the gravity of the situation, like, to light almost.
1: Mm. And then... As the days pass and the old mum hanging in there, she's built a stair and stuff. And that time, the first time they take the tablet out, the wonderful staff there and you yeah. see her, you see her. That must have been unbelievable.
5: I don't know, it was just like I can't, I generally can't put into words like the like sense of relief. Because I think when we first saw her awake, it was like, oh, God, she's like, you know, thank God she's really pulling through this. And, um, like, it, like, it definitely was. I think, like, we owe so much to, like, the nurses and doctors in particularly the ICU in the Lords with, like, all over the hospital and even, like, all over the, the country and all the work that they're doing. But also, like, I have to say that our, like, family neighbours and friends were fantastic in their support, albeit from a distance. Like, mm. the outpouring of, like, you know, love and prayers that we got from not, like, only all over Ireland but all over the world was phenomenal. We, like, you know, The power of prayer, I think, you know, really was paramount in mom's recovery. But I just, I know myself, like the first time I saw her, it's just that like sense of relief. And even though she was just coming out of like sedation herself, so she wasn't fully alert, like she was still responding. And like the really little um, steps that she was taking, like being able to, you know, squeeze a doctor's hand or, Stick out her tongue when she was asked to, like, by the doctors and nurses, just to show that she was responding and, like, you know, she was coming back to us. I think it's definitely a feeling I'll never forget.
1: What a feeling is right. What a story. Laura Barry, miracle woman, is home having beaten COVID nineteen. We wish her and her family all the very best for the future. That's it for the moment. We'll have more interesting conversations with great guests soon for you on our next podcast. In the meantime, do join us each afternoon for late lunch live from 1:30 on your station, LMFM.:
3: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss.
0: If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers.